July 9th, Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 20. When the time came, we, Luke, Paul, and his companions, set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of an army officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment, and Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a boat whose home port was Adramatium. It was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province of Asia. The next day, when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. Putting out to sea from there, we encountered headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. So we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. We passed along the coast of the provinces of Cilicia and Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. There the officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy, and he put us on board. We had several days of rough sailing, and after great difficulty we finally neared Sinaitis, but the wind was against us, so we sailed down to the leeward side of Crete, past the Cape of Salmone. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty, and finally arrived at Fair Havens, near the city of Lasia. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for long voyages by then because it was so late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Sirs, he said, I believe there is trouble ahead if we go on, shipwreck, loss of cargo, injuries, and danger to our lives. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul, and since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. When a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought they could make it, so they pulled up anchor and sailed along close to shore. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength, a northeaster, they called it, caught the ship and blew it out to sea. They couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. We sailed behind a small island named Cauda, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard the lifeboat that was being towed behind us. Then we banded the ship with ropes to strengthen the hull. The sailors were afraid of being driven across to the sandbars of Sirtis, off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor and were thus driven before the wind. The next day, as gale-force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The following day, they even threw out the ship's equipment and anything else they could lay their hands on. The terrible storm raged unabated for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars, until at last all hope was gone. All right, what's the bottom line? John 17, Jesus says, This is eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What Jesus is saying is not just that the point of life is knowing God, but that the definition of life is knowing God. It's what you were built and designed for. There's a place in Jeremiah 9 where uh, God says, let not, the, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. 
Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And what the Bible is saying is, imagine that you were, what he's saying there in Jeremiah, imagine that you were the brightest person in the world so that every university and every government wanted you to work for them. Or imagine you were the greatest athlete in the world and you were a national treasure. Or imagine that you were the sole heir of five billion dollars. What kind of life would you have if you were in those situations? What kind of satisfaction, what kind of fulfillment would you experience? What is God saying in Jeremiah? He's saying, that's nothing compared to the thrill and satisfaction of knowing me. That's the claim of the Bible. The Bible dares anybody to disprove that. That, the, that knowing God, the satisfaction and fulfillment of knowing God is far greater than the satisfaction of being the wisest, the mightiest, or the richest person in the world. Nobody's ever disproved it. People who have tried it, their hands at both have always said that God's right. Knowing God. Ask the average person coming out of church this morning in New York, why did Jesus come? Some will say he came to show us how to live. Some will say he came to die so we would have our sins forgiven. Now those are true. But ask Jesus why he came and you'll see that those answers have missed the point. When people say, what is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who goes to worship, acknowledges God and all of his life. A Christian is someone who tries to live life on a higher plane. A Christian is someone who goes to God when he's in trouble and gets help. A Christian is someone who gets inspiration from reading the Bible. And Jesus says, you've missed the point, Philip. You've missed it. I came. I died. I was raised. I passed through the heavens. I am seated at the right hand of the Father that you might know him. A personal knowledge that you might know him intimately, daily. There is nothing greater than this. There is no nothing short of this is your goal. The way you know that you have met the real God is that you are hungry and thirsty. The sense of his absence, the, 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 the dissatisfaction with his absence is an evidence that he has touched you. In other words, a sense of his absence, a, a longing that that absence be gone, a sense of his absence is a sense of his presence. If he's not present, if he's not working in your life, you might know intellectually that he's absent, but you, you don't long for him. How do you know that you've met the real God? Even a talk like this, a sermon like this is going to start to make you say, oh yeah, boy, I want him. I would like to feel him, I would like to see him, I would like to experience him, you know? The deeper that sense of absence is, the greater his presence in your life. Because look at what David shows 
as evidence that he has really, really passionately after the real God. He says, he says, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. Fine, so how do we know he's after the real God? I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you because your love is better than life. But when you find him, a change happens to one degree or another. But when he actually experienced God, he began to realize your love is better than life. When he experienced God, he says, if I have your love, I don't need anything else in life. If I have your love, that is life. The mark of authentic spiritual experience is that you become satisfied with God for who He is and not just for the benefits that He gives you. That's exactly what David's saying. David's saying, I came to find that if I had an experience of God, I didn't want anything else. If I had God's love, if I had God's honor, if I had God's glory, if I had God's wisdom, if I had God's favor, I don't need anybody else's favor. If I had God's love, I don't need anything else. What ends up happening is he begins to experience God and rest in God for who he is, not for what he can give me. Now, to one degree or another, anybody who's found God knows that. Some of you, as I'm talking about this, you say, you know, I, I know that. Why do you know that? Because God's shown that to you. Psalm 7, verses 1 through 17, a psalm of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush of the tribe of Benjamin. I come to you for protection, O Lord my God. Save me from my persecutors. Rescue me. If you don't, they will maul me like a lion, tearing me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord my God, if I have done wrong or am guilty of injustice, if I have betrayed a friend or plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemies capture me. Let them trample me into the ground. Let my honor be left in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. Gather the nations before you. Sit in your throne high above them. The Lord passes judgment on the nations. Declare me righteous, O Lord, for I am innocent, O Most High. End the wickedness of the ungodly, but help all those who obey you. For you look deep within the mind and heart, O righteous God. God is my shield, saving those whose hearts are true and right. God is a judge who is perfectly fair. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent... God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and ignite his flaming arrows. The wicked conceive evil. They are pregnant with trouble and give birth to lies. They dig a pit to trap others and then fall into it themselves. They make trouble, but it backfires on them. They plan violence for others, but it falls on their own heads. I will thank the Lord, because He is just. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. 
Proverbs 18, verse 22. The man who finds a wife finds a treasure and receives favor from the Lord.